I'm going to give you guys just a very quick disclaimer. And I'm, and I'm going to do this because I'm not trying to trick anyone. I'm not trying to play on anyone's emotions. I'm not trying to, to play a game. I'm not trying to, to pick on the fact that today is the one day of the year you come to church. Or happens to be the day that you tune into a live stream. So right from the beginning, I'm just going to let you know, I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to play a trick. I'm going to close the Bible study, giving you an opportunity to, to pray to receive Christ. So you have the next 30 to 45 minutes to chew on that and to think through that and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about that. I don't do that here at Calvary 316. We don't do an altar call. And, and we're not going to do that. You're not going to be called to the altar. In fact, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand, to stand up, to do a jumping jack for Jesus. It's an amazing thing. You look at Paul, known as Saul of Tarsus. This has nothing to do with the Bible study this morning. Saul of Tarsus was an enemy of Christ. He had rejected Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with the Lord. He viewed Christians as the enemy. And he's on the way to Damascus with evil intent to do harm to the church. And Jesus met him on the road. And we're told a bright light shone and knocked him off his donkey. And Jesus did a lot of talking. And Saul, to become Paul, did a lot of listening. And their conversation wraps up with, with Jesus telling Saul of Tarsus to continue on to Damascus and to wait. That Jesus was going to send someone. And so sure enough, Saul goes to Damascus. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He sits in silence. He's blinded in darkness. And he sits there. And Ananias, a disciple of Jesus who was in that town, Jesus spoke to him and said, you need to go and minister to this man for I have plans for him. And if you read through the story, it's an amazing thing. In Acts chapter 9, Ananias obeys Jesus and he goes. And he lays hands on, on Saul and he prays for him. And we're told he, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Scales fell from his eyes so that he could see. Then he goes and he's baptized. And the next verse, we find him preaching in Damascus. Now, what you don't find in Saul's conversion, and you could go back and look and read. We talked about this at Outlaw Radio this past week. You don't find Saul of Tarsus praying some magic bean prayer. You don't find him praying any prayer. Jesus knocks him on the ground, and he goes and he sits in darkness, and a man lays hands on him, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he goes and he gets baptized, and he's preaching Christ. He doesn't pray a prayer. He doesn't walk down a center aisle. He doesn't get on his knees at the, at the, the altar. He does none of that. Was Saul converted? 
You better believe it. How do we know his life? If I could snap, I would. Thank you. I'm getting there. I'm close. At least I'm standing this Easter, not in a chair. He doesn't walk down an aisle. We know he was converted. Why? His life instantly changed. So I'm saying all this to say that the, that the magic isn't in a prayer. It's not in a declaration. It's not in a profession or a confession. It's in a decision of your will to accept Jesus and all that he offers. And then leave with the implications of that, filled with the Holy Spirit. So, this morning, at the end of our study, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray in your own soul, in your own heart, to give your life to Jesus. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to point you out. The only thing I would ask is that if you do, if you have that moment, it doesn't have to be after this service. It can be in the weeks ahead. Just let me know because I'd like to know. Is that a deal? Okay, not playing games. I'm not tricking anyone. Not playing on the Easter emotion. There's no Willy Wonka golden ticket you're going to find tucked under your seat. Or maybe. That would be pretty cool. We should do that next year. We're in Matthew chapter 27. That was not planned until I prayed. So, Lord, that's you. Verse 15 of chapter 27. Actually, we'll go back to verse 11. Told that Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered, then nothing. Then Pilate said to Jesus, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. This has been a long night for Jesus. Even up until this point, Jesus, following a private dinner with his disciples, leaves an upper room, and he goes to a private garden known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. It was an olive garden. It's where they made olive oil, fuel for lamps. It was secluded. It was dark. Jesus goes out of the upper room. He goes to this garden. Judas has already left. He's been in cahoots with the religious establishment for some time now. They need a time and a place where they can arrest Jesus apart from the multitudes that love Jesus. Judas is going to give them the perfect time and opportunity. Jesus going to a secluded private garden in the middle of the night to pray. And it's in this scene that Jesus, he leaves nine of them behind in the garden. He takes Peter, James, and John with him deeper into the grove. We're told that Jesus begins to pray. He knows what's coming. He knows this is his destiny. He knows what the rest of the evening and the next day will include. And we're told that anxiety is so great that he swept what looked like great droplets of blood. 
The anxiety, the stress literally made his capillaries within his sweat glands rupture. A phenomenon that, that, that occurs with people in high stress. He prays. The humanity of Jesus. Three times may this cup pass from me. The cup of God's wrath. If there's any other way Jesus prays to save man from his sin, may it be. But Jesus' refrain is constant, but not my will, but your will be done. From a distance, you can hear a commotion. Again, it's dark. You see the torches, the clanging of armor. A mob is coming into the garden, and they arrest Jesus. Jesus is betrayed by a friend with a kiss. Judas identifying Jesus. Which is interesting to me because Judas had to identify Jesus, which means that Jesus looked a lot different than the, the traditional depictions of him. Have you seen the photos of Jesus? There are a lot of them. And you notice a common reality of the photos of Jesus is that he had this halo. That Jesus glowed in the dark. We know that's not true because, again, Judas could have just told the soldiers, get the guy glowing. He's different from the rest of them. We also know that he's not, he's not English. Get the white guy. Speaking in a British accent, they arrest Jesus. He's not 10 feet tall. Get the big one. He was normal. And they arrest him, and from this point forward, a chain of events unfolds. Jesus gets hacky-sacked around Jerusalem. There are two different high priests serving at the time, Caiaphas, Annas. He goes to one. He gets sent to the other. He meets with a partial meeting of the Sanhedrin. He meets with a full meeting of the Sanhedrin. They come to the conclusion that Jesus should die. The problem is that the Jews no longer had the right of capital punishment that had been revoked by the Romans. And so they get to a point where they want to condemn Jesus to death, but they need the authority of Rome. So they send Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now Pilate realizes, he recognizes, that there's a lot of politics at play here. There's some scheming afoot. Pilate quickly comes to the conclusion that this is an innocent man that's being railroaded. That being said, it's Passover. Jerusalem is packed to capacity. He's a Roman governor. His number one job is keep the peace at all costs. So he's stuck between this Catch 22. Do I, do I sentence an innocent man to death to placate these religious leaders? Or do I tick off the religious leaders by obeying my conscience and letting him go? Now he finds out from Jesus that he's from the region of Galilee. And he thinks, I've got my out. You're Galilean. That means you're actually under the jurisdiction of Herod. And so from Pilate, visit one, he gets sent to Herod. The same Herod that had killed John the Baptist had beheaded him. And Jesus doesn't say a, a word to Herod. Doesn't play the game whatsoever. Herod is like, I'm done with this. Wanted to see some cool magic tricks. This is boring. Sends him back to Pilate. Pilate's stuck again in his quandary. So this is where we find him in Matthew 27. Verse 15 Matthew tells us that at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. Ah, the out, right? The way of escape. At that time, Matthew says, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. 
Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy, speaking of Jesus. While he was sitting on his judgment seat, we're told that Pilate's wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. We'll get to that in a few weeks. It's interesting. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Then the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they said, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. Again, that's bad news. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And man, that was the greatest lie Satan ever told this man, for he wasn't innocent. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when they had scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. They gathered the whole garrison around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, a reed in his hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head, again, with these crown, this crown of thorns. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off. After the blood coagulated and scabbed, they put his own clothes on him. They led him away to be crucified. Now they came out. They found a man of Cyrene. Simon was his name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say place of the skull, that is what Golgotha means, skull also translated as Calvary. You go to a skull church. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but he tasted it, he would not drink it. They crucified him, divided his garments, cast lots that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, and he quotes from Psalms. Sitting down, they kept watch over him. Verse 37, they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And then in the next few verses, we get some taunting that's happening. Verse 44 tells us that even the robbers who were crucified with Jesus reviled him with the same thing. Now, let's flip the Gospel of Luke. Verse 26 of chapter 23, again, some of this will be repetitive. There's a reason for it. Now, as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. A great multitude of people followed him. Women also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming 
and which they will say, blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say, to the mountains fall on us, and to the hills cover us. Jesus is speaking of a coming judgment. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Verse 32, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. They had come to the place called Calvary. They crucified him, the criminals, one to the right hand and the other to the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers said, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God, and the soldiers mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then our main text for this morning. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God? seeing that you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, he calls him Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting, as you look at the unfolding of events, Jesus, after receiving the sentence, the condemnation, the conviction, being sentenced to being crucified, he's scourged, and he's mocked, and he's taunted. Now understand, even before we get to this point, as we'll see in Matthew, Jesus has taken quite a beating before he takes the beating. He's in such a desperate situation that he can't carry his own cross to Calvary. This man, Simon, gets picked out of the crowd to carry the cross for him. Most people never survived a Roman scourging. Jesus is in tough shape. Now, what's noteworthy about the chain of events of this evening. Again, all of this happens before 9 a.m. This is in the morning. Like you will hear some pastors that will talk about and they'll point out that the same multitude that was crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king, as Jesus is making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem is the same group of people then chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Not so. This is all set up by the religious establishment. This is all rigged. They've cherry-picked a crowd. They've brought them in. They've manipulated them. And they've asked for Jesus' crucifixion. Most people would find out Jesus had died after the fact. Once you woke up that morning, you would discover Jesus has already been crucified. He's in the process of dying. This was all done in such a way to keep the multitudes at bay, They wanted to keep them from rioting, from revolting. They did it in secret. Again, noteworthy, it all happens in darkness. Meaning that the plan for the day had already been set. 
Going into this day, the plan had already been established to erect three crosses at Golgotha. Crosses were often placed in public transits. Paths today, the traditional place of Golgotha doubles as a bus station. Executions were public. It was Rome making a point. Three crosses were planned before Jesus even enters the picture. Understand that. Not only are three crosses planned, but three criminals had already been sentenced and were planned to be executed. Three men. Two of them, we don't know their names. One of them, we do. Barabbas. We're told that he was a notorious criminal. In another place, we're told that his crime, upon which he would be crucified, was sedition, treason, revolution, murder. It seems as though the other two men, upon which the other two crosses were intended, had some familiarity with one another. They speak to each other. All we're told of them is that they're, they're robbers, they're thieves. The word used is theft through violence. So these were evil men. They had been arrested. We don't know if they were cohorts with Barabbas or not. Maybe they had been part of some plan there at Passover to overthrow the Romans. Maybe their deeds had been done Months before, and yet the Romans had decided to wait to crucify them before Passover to make a point to the multitudes. If you rebel, this is the consequence. Regardless, you have three men completely guilty. Completely guilty of crimes, violent crimes, murder, thievery. Now, we're not told whether or not these three men had received any additional punishment, such as Jesus. Can you imagine being one of the two, though, seeing Barabbas get pardoned? I mean, you have to be thinking, at least initially, whether you knew of Jesus or not, man, this guy, he's got to be pretty bad for the Romans to let the traitor go and replace him with this guy. And the way that the story unfolds, according to Matthew's account, again, Luke gives us an interesting detail, is these men are kind of... They know what their fate, their fate is sealed. They're watching Jesus and they're mocking Jesus. It's unlikely they had been scourged. The Romans didn't do that because a crucifixion was to be prolonged. The idea of a crucifixion is that you would be hanging there for days and often not perched very high, but at eye level. A lot of times if you study uh, historians that document Roman crucifixions, you would die sometimes by asphyxiation, you couldn't breathe. Sometimes it was blood loss. Other times you died because you were eaten by scavengers because you couldn't defend yourselves. Birds of prey or packs of dogs would come and just eat you to death. And there's nothing you can do. Horrific. Brutal. And they would leave you there until your body ultimately rotted enough to fall off. And then they would throw you in the dump. These men find themselves being nailed to to a cross to the right and to the left of Jesus. And even upon being nailed to the cross, Matthew tells us what? The people around Jesus are mocking him. They're spitting at him. They're ridiculing him. Not only have the Romans, 
you know, dressed him up as a king and beat upon him, taking this makeshift scepter and the crown of thorns, driving it into his skull. We're told in Isaiah that Jesus was beaten beyond the point, not just of recognition, but the recognition of being a man. His beard was plucked from his face. Man, I'm brought to knees when I got to pull a nose hair. I had a beard, a good beard, until we had Mabel. One day with little fingers in the beard, I'm done. Cut it right off. Hurt, those little fingers, pulling. Imagine. You, know, you, you focus a lot on the, the physical torment of Jesus through the experience, rightfully so. But the emotional, the psychological torture. And here he is after everything that's taken place. He's been nailed to a cross, and he's got two criminals to his right and to his left. And what are they doing? They are joining with the crowds, jeering him, mocking him. Now, again, if we're only looking at Matthew's account, that's all we're given of the two men to the right and the left of Jesus. Which is why we flip to Luke, because the story doesn't end with just their mockery. You see, at some point, these men start personalizing the insults. Again, verse 39, one of the criminals started to blaspheme Jesus. Hey, if you're the Christ, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really the King, if you're really the Savior, save yourself and save us. Now, this is not a, a genuine petition. Again, this is blasphemy. If you are. It's literally, since you are, what kind of a Messiah are you? You can't save yourself. You can't save us. You can't save anyone. And yet something has happened because the other criminal who was in on the mockery earlier on, something has now changed in his perspective. Because this man now has, he stopped mocking. He stopped ridiculing. He stopped antagonizing and in the presence of this man blaspheming, he answers and he rebukes him. Do you not fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And then he adds, he says, we justly. You see, the man understands that what he's experiencing was justified. That he had done the crime and was paying the just punishment. Man, to, to think through what you would have had to have done to be in such a place and say this is justified. What crime he had to have committed, what sin. The man's like, hey, we deserve to be here. This is my cross, and I'm bearing it, and I'm, it's, it's a just thing that's happened for me, and guess what, buddy, for you too. And yet notice, he then says, he says, we've received the due reward of our deeds, but this man, and he points, he doesn't point, he nods in the direction of Jesus. He says, this man has done nothing. The man has not only, throughout just the events of the cross, because he's been mocking earlier, but at some point, in the 30 minutes, an hour, give or take, 
The man has completely changed his perspective on life. I'm, I'm guilty. That man is totally innocent. Completely innocent. And not only is the man innocent, but now the man has, has identified some things about Jesus that were important. Notice he calls him Lord. He says, you're my Lord. Now the man's nailed to a cross. And an hour before his mocking Jesus, but in this moment, he not only recognizes his innocence, he recognizes his lordship, Lord. And then note, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You are the king. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Savior. I know what's about to happen. We're about to die. But please remember me when you come into your kingdom. So you have one thief who's mocking Jesus and railing against Jesus, and you have another thief that recognizes something about Jesus. Now, what, what, what's happened that maybe changed the man's perspective? Well, we read about it in a few verses beforehand, that as all of these things are going on, as Jesus, through the scourging, and as he gets nailed to the cross, Jesus, as these things are happening to him, Verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the tense, the verb tense, is that Jesus didn't just make this a one-time declaration as many believe. The tense implies that this is a repeated thing. That this was a refrain that Jesus was over and over, forgive, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. As he's getting hit with a cat of nine tails that's sticking into his back and ripping the flesh apart, he's repeating, Father, forgive them. And as they nail him to it, the right, Father, forgive them. The left hand, Father, forgive them. As they mock him and torment him, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the man's jeering, and the man's making a mockery of Jesus. And the man's like, you're a fraud. You're a fool. But then he keeps watching Jesus. And he reaches a conclusion at some point. This man is who he said he was. And we're making a big mistake. And he's the Christ, the Son of God. And in this moment, I know I'm guilty, but I know he's innocent. And I know he's a king. And I know there's a kingdom. And I know when I breathe my last, that's not the end. So Jesus, Lord, please remember me with what comes next. And then what does Jesus say? He says, assuredly, 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 I say to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. See, Jesus affirms that something has happened in this man's heart, that there's a faith that has bubbled up from some deep well. And the man looks at Jesus and is like, you need to save me. Remember me. I'm a guilty man. Remember me. I'm placing my faith in you. I believe in you. Remember me. Now, I, I want you to note that there is absolutely zero difference between the two men. Their distance to the Savior is absolutely identical. 
And guess what? They are both equally condemned. You see, there's a picture that God has orchestrated, even in these subtle details, that's important for us. It's important for you. You have two criminals. They're guilty. They deserve death. The wages of sin is death. Neither of them can do a darn thing to earn their salvation. Do you notice that? You know why? They're nailed to a tree. They can't can't do some things to earn favor. They can't do some things to earn salvation. They can't do anything at all. They are dying. They can't be baptized. They can't be christened. They can't partake of Holy Communion. They can't go give money to the poor. They can't go live a righteous life. They can literally do nothing. With their hands, their feet can travel no path. And yet one man believed. And made a decision of his will. He recognized Jesus. He said, you're different. You're innocent. I'm guilty. Remember me. And Jesus says, you got it, buddy. Jesus will die on the cross of natural causes. We know that primarily because an autopsy is actually done by a trained soldier. Passover was approaching at 6 p.m. at sundown. They needed to expedite the process. So the instructions were given to go around and break their legs so that they could no longer push up to get air. They come to Jesus, and he's already declared, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. To verify, they take a spear, and they rub it up, run it up through his ribs, and we're told out comes a mixture of blood and water, this plasma with blood, which tells us that the the heart was working so hard to pump oxygen-deprived blood through the body. Again, Jesus struggling to get breaths of air. That the heart's pumping so hard, so stringently, so with such tenacity, that it literally began to develop these capillaries, these water sacs on the outside, and it ruptured. Cardiac arrest is how Jesus officially, the post-mortem would say, evidenced by the blood and water coming out. So they don't break Jesus' legs, but go back to the two men. One man stubborn in his sin, making a mockery of Jesus, rejecting Christ, wanting nothing to do with him. His legs are broken. Agony and pain. And his life goes downhill from there. For he awakens into a totally different reality, instantly, apart from Jesus. And the other man experiences the same fate. The Roman soldiers come, they break his legs. But as he breathes his last, he holds to that great expectation. That man made me a promise that he would remember me. 
And he awoken immediately to a new reality. And guess what? That moment where he breathed his last was the worst his life would ever be. For he awoke to glory and to the face of a Jesus who looked at him and said, I remember you. I know you. Come with me into my kingdom. Is there a greater picture of humanity? For all, hum hum all of humanity, every human being has to make a decision about Jesus that will determine what happens the day you die. And your conclusion has to be, is he, is he, is he guilty? Is he actually the Christ? Is he actually the Messiah? Is he actually who he said he is? And please, please dispel of the absolutely stupid, ridiculous notion that Jesus can be anything but three things. Jesus is either an, a, com a complete liar or he's a madman, a lunatic. Like people, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Bullcrap. The things that Jesus talked about as far as morality goes were completely predicated upon him providing you the Holy Spirit to achieve it. Because if not, it's a cruel joke. Hey, love your enemies. That's the standard. I can't do that. What good is that? Do good to those who, who, who do bad against you. What? Jesus is either a liar and a total fraud and if you believe that this morning, if you're like this man looking at Jesus and like, you're a fraud, hey, Christ, save yourself or me. You know what? At least it's logical. It's wrong, but it's logical. Or you can be like, hey, you're a lunatic. You're a madman. Yeah, you might be innocent, but you're nuts. Yes, you didn't have ill intent with the things you said. You just were charismatic and developed the following. Or Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or he's actually what this other man concluded. He's Lord. Now, it's hard to determine which of the three Jesus is without the predicate that Jesus told you. He placed everything he did and everything he said and all that he was and is on one proof. Jesus, I love it. He didn't say, hey, here's all this stuff about how to live and about salvation and about life after death. Trust me. No, Jesus didn't just say, trust me. He said, you know what? You'll be able to accept all of these things as being true because I'm going to do something as the evidence what I'm saying is real that no one's ever done before. I'm going to die. Everyone does that. Stats on death are real strong. But after three days, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. There's no other moral teacher, religious leader. No one has ever even dared have the audacity to predicate everything they said on that. Why? Because that doesn't happen. You see, the promise that Jesus, this man on the cross says, please remember me. 
when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you got it, which would be cruel if he didn't. How did the man, how did he enter the kingdom? Because death was not the end of his life. And how do we know it's not the end of his life? Because Jesus died and was resurrected and says, you can take everything I told you to the bank. The the world has a lot of thoughts about life after death. It's something people don't like to think about. People don't like to chew on. People don't like to mull over it. What happens when I die? And you can ignore it as much as you want, but it is an inevitable end. You're going to find out. Because you're going to die, and it's either done, or there's something else. And the most trustworthy person to speak to that would be someone that died, came back, was like, I'll tell you about it. And there's no one else that's done that but Jesus. Everybody else has theories on it. Jesus is the one that went to the other divide and came back and said, you can take it. It's about me, it's about my kingdom, and it's about me remembering you. Again, I'm not playing a game this morning. I'm not trying to pull on heartstrings or tug on emotions. I'm just flat out saying that you have the Savior of the world on one cross. And you got two other men to the right and to the left. And what happened at the end of that day was determined upon the conclusions they reached about Jesus. One of them, his fate was much different than the other. And so this morning, I point you to Jesus. I say, look at Jesus. I say, what rational conclusion can you reach about Jesus? And understand, if Jesus could save that guy, then he can save you. And it tells us that salvation isn't predicated upon you earning it or deserving it or being worthy of it. Your salvation is completely determined upon one thing, your conclusions of Jesus, and whether or not you'll place your faith in him. That man did in inner glory. The other man didn't and faced destruction. So, Father, Lord, we look at that.